of Aragon, chapter 18. It was July and the court was at Windsor Castle. Still there was the King in his apartments, the Queen in hers and Lady Anne in separate, very grand quarters. The days were full of jousts, masks and hunting. Sometimes the King and Queen went to Mass together, more often they did not. When the Queen was in the main hall, Lady Anne was not there. When the Queen was not in the great hall, Lady Anne sat in her place, as if she was already crowned. I felt very sorry for Queen Catherine, although I only saw her at a distance. We were not in London, so Will was not around. I had seen him a couple of times since Lady Anne had spoken to him, and he had been friendly, but not effusive. He had shown no wish to speak with me privately, or to have anything other than the briefest of contacts. I tried not to think of him. I was working harder than I'd ever done before. I would be on duty most afternoons, entertaining the ladies as they sewed or played cards. On days when there were jousting, I got an hour or so off to watch the knights. It was a risky business, and I understood that Lady Anne did not want the King to continue with it. He was in his forties now, and jousting was really a game for a young man. I imagined having a man in full armour hurtling at me on a two-ton steed with a sharp pointed lance in his hand. The game was to land a blow on him before he did it to you. I was glad that women and common people did not engage in this sport as it was prohibitively expensive. Thank God it was only young noblemen desperate to prove their virility that took part. I didn't like the thought of Will in that situation at all. One morning, I was woken up by a maidservant. King Henry and Lady Anne had already left to go hunting on their way to Chertsey Abbey. The rest of their households were to follow on immediately. I asked, what about the Queen? Is she to come too? The maidservant shook her head. No, she is to stay here. The King sent her a message. She looked to see if he'd gone, but he didn't even say goodbye. So we packed up everything belonging to Lady Anne and loaded it into the wagons. We didn't see Queen Catherine at all. Her servants were going about their business as usual. There were no wagons being packed for her. Every now and then I saw groups whispering in corners, asking each other what was going on. Lady Jane Seymour passed me on her way to the stables. The Queen will ride this afternoon, she told me. The horses must be prepared. Where's she going? I asked. Surely she's not going to go to Chertsey. Lady Jane shook her head sadly. No, poor lady. She's been weeping all morning and she refuses to eat or drink. We suggested she went for a ride to clear her head and she said she would think about it. So we will get the horses ready and then persuade her to take the air. How is she? Is she all right? I asked anxiously. 
Lady Jane looked at me and then said pointedly, Why should you care? You were never on her side. I was stung by her remark and protested. Oh, I was, my lady. I just tried to persuade her to avoid all this pain. Lady Jane looked long at me and then softened a bit. You may be right, Cat, she said, but you do not know the Queen. She will never, ever give up the role that God has called her to. No matter what the pain, she will always see herself as the Queen and King Henry's wife. The summer passed pleasantly enough with masks and music and jousting. I did not go on the hunting parties, but that meant I had more time to practice my lute and my songs. I was writing more songs, but hadn't played them to anyone yet. If only Will had been around, he would have listened. I did have one visitor. John, the messenger, came to find me after delivering a message for King Henry from the Queen. He was respectful, as always, and told me that he was now married to a blacksmith's daughter who was expecting their baby. I congratulated him and breathed a sigh of relief. He had been kind to me and I liked him, but I was glad he had dropped the idea of courting me. However, I was keen to talk. How does the Queen? I asked him. Did you see her when you were at Windsor? Yes, indeed I did, he said. She is well. Princess Mary is staying at Windsor and they spend every minute of the day together. After a long separation, this is what every mother wants. I nodded, agreeing with him. If the king had now broken with her, that meant that she and Princess Mary could spend some time alone together. I was sure this was what they both needed and hoped that the king would allow it to continue. I'm sad to say, daughter, that later on the king stopped any further visits from Princess Mary and that summer was the last time mother and daughter saw each other. But that was in the future and for the time being they were happy together. A thought came into my head. Do you remember that woman who booked my passage with you when you took me to Woking Palace? I asked, wondering if Mistress Stab was still at the same address. Indeed I do, he answered. The midwife who people accuse of being a witch. She left that house where you used to live. She's now living with her sister at Southwark. I forget where. She's getting on in years now and her sister looks after her. They have a pie shop. I sighed. I had hoped that she was maybe still in the same house. She had refused to tell me my history twice before, but I thought that maybe she might have changed her mind. But I couldn't find her now. How many pie shops were there in Southwark? And when would I have the time to go and search? Now that I was one of Lady Anne's musicians, I scarcely had a day off. In Queen Catherine's household, I had held a privileged place with duties so vague that I could more or less do as I pleased. It was very different now. We went back to London at the end of the summer and moved into Greenwich Palace. Lady Anne had moved into the Queen's apartments which had been refurbished especially for her. I heard that the King had told Queen Catherine to leave Windsor Castle and move to a smaller place called The Moor. It seemed now just a matter of time before the powerful men decided that her marriage had never been. I felt desperately sorry for her and wished I could comfort her. But again, I felt that if she had given in to the King, 
it would have been better for her. And of course, she could not forgive me for thinking that. I started to see Will again, now we were back in London. At first it was just in passing, as he hurried about his business for Thomas Cromwell, but one morning he stopped and asked me if we could talk. We went to a window seat, looking out over the courtyard, and sat together. I wanted to apologise, Cat. I doubted you. I thought that you were impressed with George Boleyn. I thought now you know you're the king's daughter, you would be setting your sights higher than me. And then I got very jealous, and I could not bear to think of you being with him. He's a reprobate, Cat, and not to be trusted. I know that now, I assured him. He did try to rape me. It was worse than he said. But I got away, and then Lady Anne told him he was not to trouble me further. He tried to rape you? Will's face flushed with anger. If I had known, I would have fought him. Will, you know that would end badly for you. Our voices were raised, and a couple of passing courtiers looked curiously at us. Don't even consider fighting him. I got away. No harm done. I sounded angry, but inside I could feel the relief flooding through me. I hadn't lost Will after all. I still had to check, though. I thought you liked Madge Shelton, I queried, a little archly. Indeed I do, Will smiled. She is a very pleasant lady. But unfortunately, I have my heart set on the gutter snipe that I grew up with. I looked at him and smiled, feeling happy for the first time in many months. He took my hand in his and brought it to his lips. Cat, will you stop all your doubts now and marry me? I love you deeply, you know that. When I thought you were lost to me, it was hard to carry on. I couldn't bear the thought of going through life without you. I know that you are the king's child, however secret that is. And I know that if the king ever accepted you, you could marry much higher than me. But never more loving, and no one else can give you a truer heart. I paused for a moment, and then the words rushed out. Yes, I will! He started in surprise, and then his face cracked with an enormous grin. Quickly, I qualified my acceptance. But give me a few months more in Lady Anne's service. I will be sorry to leave it all behind. Will smiled at me and waved his hand. You do not need to leave it all behind, Cat. You can continue as a musician in the court. And if we have children, why then we can get a nurse for the children. The grand ladies do it all the time. I could do that. I found it hard to comprehend such an unusual arrangement. What man wishes for his wife to be away from the household working? But then Will had a point. The grand ladies did it and took it for granted that their children would be reared by wet nurses. If they could, why not me? Why not you, Cat? he said quickly. You and me, we were always different. I got to know you as the amazing person that you are. I wasn't dazzled by your beauty. Thanks very much, I laughed. He held up his hand to still me. Though that beauty grows yet more wonderful every day. And Cat, I am not beguiled by your wealth, and nor are you beguiled by mine. <laughs>
But we fit together, Cat. We always will. That hour with him was enchanted. The sun shone on us as confessions of our love and hopes tumbled out of each other. My eyes did not move from his face, and nor did his from mine. We decided to announce our betrothal at Christmas and get married the following spring. That would give me enough time to get around the idea of being a married woman and will enough time to find lodgings for us both. In private, Lady Anne was growing restive. Again, we wait. How can it take so long for the king to declare himself head of the church? It is his church, after all. My youth is passing, cat, she said one day when I was playing to her. She lay on her bed. What if my fertile years are gone? I could not bear to be childless. She looked wistfully out of the window, where some small children were playing in the fallen leaves. And to be childless to the king, well, that would be dangerous. She looked afraid then, like a deer facing its hunters. She knew how much rested on her ability to bear sons. King Henry loved her, that was true, but she had to give him sons. I wondered how often this was on her mind and whether it might hold her back. But she'd come too far now to withdraw, especially now when her crown was coming into view. My lady, that will not happen. Your mother and your sister were both fertile into their later years. You'll be the same. You will have a table full of sons soon, all needing to be fed. She smiled distractedly at me and waved for me to carry on playing. You are lucky, cat, that you do not have these matters to concern you. Your father never despaired of having a son. If he had daughters, he would marry them and bring their husbands into the business. Lady Anne, I do not know who my father is, I said quietly. He may not have known who I was, even. She grimaced and waved for me to carry on. Well, in that case, he never had the worry, did he? She said, closing the subject. November came, and with it cold mists and frosty mornings. The court was chilly in the corridors, and the draughts came in from every window. One afternoon I was singing with some of Anne's ladies when Will was announced. The singing stopped as he came in, bowed to Lady Anne and to the rest of the company, and then spoke to Lady Anne. My lady, I need to speak with Mistress Cook on an urgent matter. Would you excuse her for a few minutes? Lady Anne looked annoyed. We were in the middle of this roundel, she said irritably. I cannot easily spare my musician. Will bowed again and tried to persuade her. It is just for a few minutes, my lady. My master, Thomas Cromwell, has sent me on this occasion. He would be most pleased if you were to allow Mistress Cat to speak with me. Very well, Lady Anne said. What is it they say? Whatever Master Cromwell wants, Master Cromwell gets. She looked a little mollified. She knew that Cromwell was working day and night to ensure that she could marry the king, and so she could afford to go a few minutes without music to meet his request. 
I curtsied and joined Will, both of us leaving quickly before she had a chance to change her mind. Once we were out of the chamber, he took me through many other chambers and stairways to the office where he worked. It was dusty and dark compared with the rest of the palace and piled up with books, files and manuscripts. Sit down, cat, he said, gesturing me to a chair. Have some wine, pouring goblets of wine for both of us. I think this is important. He picked up an old file that was on the desk and sat down next to me. He opened it and brought out an old document that looked like it had been written some time before. Last year, an old woman came to Austin Friars, Master Cromwell's house, he said. She asked for me by name, but I was away from the house. She said to the maid that she had an important document for my sister. Well, the maid told her that I did not have a sister. Of course, Cat, they knew you as my friend and not my sister. The maid told her to leave, at which the old woman became tearful. She begged the woman to take the document, saying she had to grant the wishes of a dying woman. She stood there crying, and at last the maid took the document, mainly to get rid of her. The old woman thanked her profusely and went on her way. The maid was busy and put the document on a desk in the office for me to see when I returned. As it happened, I did not return for several days, and before I came back, the document had been filed away. The maid forgot about it, and I was never told about it. And so it sat in a back file where we put everything that isn't current but might be useful. He paused and took a drink of wine before he continued. I started to tremble. So, Cat, yesterday I was looking for a list of university dons who support the king. I knew I had it somewhere, but couldn't find it. In desperation, I opened this old file and found this document. What was written on this grubby piece of paper, I wondered. He put it into my hands. See, it is addressed to you, Mistress Cat Cook, care of her brother. I stared at it. The handwriting was spidery, not a good secretary hand at all, but my name was clearly there. Have you read this? I asked Will. He nodded. I didn't want to bring you over It was not if it was nothing. But I saw very soon that it is very important. Here, read it. He handed me the document and I started to read. The subscription on the outside was as he'd said. To Mistress Cat Cook, care of her brother. I started to read. Daughter, I have copied it for you exactly as I read it. This is the account of what happened on the night when I was born. I am entrusting this letter to my sister, Mistress Elphick, in the hope that she will find you, Mistress Cook. I am near death and I cannot go to my grave without telling you the truth about your birth. I am sorry that I did not tell you earlier. It was true, I was concerned for your safety, but I was also concerned for my own safety. My story could be used by enemies of the king to make the succession to the throne insecure. 
I was afraid I would be implicated in something for which I would be punished severely. I have done wrong, but nothing was designed to harm the Tudors. It was important that you understand that and that you respect my dying wish to leave this matter undisturbed. If it ever comes out, it could harm so many people and even the monarchy itself. I have worked as a midwife for 30 years now and I have delivered many, many healthy babies. But I have never before or since encountered a birth like the one I attended on January the 31st, 1510. It was in the middle of the night, about one or two, when I was woken by a loud knocking at my door. It was a messenger from the court. He told me that the Queen had gone into labour prematurely and that the royal midwife was not in London. He asked me urgently to go and help the Queen. Of course, I got dressed, picked up my midwife's bag and hastened away with the messenger. I had not been in the royal court before, but I was confident of my ability as a midwife. When it comes to labour, a queen is no different from an ordinary maid. When I arrived at the palace, I was taken swiftly through many richly decorated chambers until at last I reached the queen's birthing room. She was lying on a pallet bed with a couple of ladies sitting beside her, holding her hand as she cried out. I could see that she was labouring hard and that the babe was due to arrive soon. I took the place of the ladies and felt her belly as she had her contractions. I told her to breathe through at them, to bring the air into her lungs. A doctor arrived, but he was content to allow me to manage the labour. Doctors do not have the knowledge of birth that us midwives do. The Queen was in a lot of pain, but after each contraction she gave me a small triumphant smile. I will be a mother tonight, God willing, she told me. I remember that. I remember the hope that filled her and made her brave. I answered her that yes, God willing, she would be a mother by that night. I did not add that the baby was very early, from the size of her belly, around two months. It would need many prayers to help it survive. As the contractions grew closer and closer together, the Queen became restless, calling out to God and the Virgin Mary and clutching at her holy girdle. The pain was almost too much for her, but she was getting the instinctive need to push the baby out in spite of it. I propped her half up with pillows, her legs parted in front of her. I could see the baby's head crowning in the birth canal. I told her, just two more pushes, then she would have her baby. She pushed once and let out a terrible cry of pain. I told her to wait for a moment until the next contraction and then she was to push with all her might. With an unearthly scream, the Queen pushed and I was able to guide the baby out into the world. It was a little girl, perfectly formed, but she was dead. Her chest was not moving. She didn't cry. I did what I always do, sucked out the baby's airways and rubbed hard on her chest. But still, she didn't move. The doctor, hovering, came and put his hand on the tiny child. Your Majesty, the child is dead, he said somberly. May God rest her soul. 
The Queen broke down and started a terrible keening. The grief was bursting out of her. The doctor reached for his silver scissors, cut the cord and waved to me. He told me to take the babe away and that he would examine the Queen. I took the little dead girl, wrapped her in some linen and took her into the next door chamber where I laid her upon the table. Shortly, her little body would be disposed of. The doctor called me back into the room. He took me aside and whispered to me that the Queen was still pregnant, that there was another baby inside her. He had felt her belly and it was still firm. He told me to help the Queen to bed where she must rest. During all of this, the Queen was in a storm of grief, wailing and hugging herself. Her ladies stood helpless, unable to help her in the face of this misery, none of them listening to the frantic conversations between me and the doctor. Even now, I remember the words that the doctor said to Queen Catherine. Your Majesty, do not distress yourself. There is another babe in your womb. The Queen looked dazed, as if she could not quite understand what was going on. She kept on saying, another baby, another baby, as if she couldn't believe it. The doctor was very matter-of-fact when he answered, Your Majesty, you were carrying twins. There is every sign that the second baby will be well. You must rest now, madam. Drink some honey and eggs for strength and say your prayers from your bed. So, I am still with child? she asked. Yes, indeed, madam, and there is every chance that it will be a healthy boy, but you must rest now. He swept out of the chamber, leaving me to deliver the placenta. The queen was very pale and quiet, but not crying any more. I washed her and put her into a clean night shift and helped her into the great state bed. Then the ladies tended to her, bringing her spiced ale and sponging her face with lavender water. I took the bloody sheets from the pallet bed into the next chamber and tidied away the signs of birth. I remember the king came to visit his wife. We all curtsied. I had never seen either the king or queen before, and it was strange to see them in such a situation. The king was consoling the queen and told her that she must rest until the next baby came. He said that he had announced that one baby was dead, too early born to live, but the other babe was still safely in her womb. The court would be praying for the queen and for the son that she was carrying. There were no prayers for the baby that had died. She had not been christened, so she would go to Limbo, where unbaptized babies stayed for all eternity. People don't like to think about that. It makes them uneasy. What kind of God is it that excludes innocence from heaven? But I'm just an ordinary woman. I am no scholar, so I don't understand. The king stayed for about an hour and then left, instructing the queen to sleep. I went into the next chamber and called for a laundress to collect the bloody linen that I had taken in there. That was when Meg came to the door, curtsying to me and hurrying over to take the piles of cloth. It was then that we heard a little snuffling sound from the table, almost like a little puppy. The handkerchief that had been covering the dead baby moved slightly. I ran over to the table and pulled the handkerchief off. The little girl was struggling to breathe. 
Each breath was an effort, but she was alive. Meg couldn't believe it. She kept saying, the babe lives, the babe lives. I had no time to wonder. This baby had to be saved. I cleared her airways again and started to gently massage her tiny heart. She was no bigger than a child's doll. Slowly, her breathing started to become regular and her colour became pink. I knew I must keep her warm. It was very cold in the antechamber, so I wrapped her in the handkerchief and then my cloak. It was then I made the mistake that haunted me for the rest of my life. I knew I should have gone back into the Queen and told her that the baby was alive, but then she had already been pronounced dead. The whole of the court would know by now. Anyway, she probably wouldn't last the night. She wasn't well. If I told the truth, I could get into serious trouble for missing the signs of life in the baby. I don't know how that happened. I really don't. I am sure that the babe was dead when she was delivered. Somehow, being in that cold room for a couple of hours had brought her back to life. So then I knew I had to decide what to do with the baby. Meg agreed that we couldn't tell the Queen, but this baby needed milk and a mother's warmth immediately. I wondered if I could find a wet nurse for her that had no connection with the court. Then Meg told me that her sister had just had a baby boy that very day. Meg could bring the baby to her to be fed alongside the little boy. Meg told me her sister was a good woman, the wife of a cook, and that she would be pleased to take care of the baby for a few weeks until it was decided what to do. So it was that we left the palace with the baby girl wrapped up and in my midwife's bag. I told the servants that I had arranged for burial for the little girl in an unmarked grave and that the body had already gone. Mistress Cat, that little girl was you. You are the legitimate daughter of King Henry and Queen Catherine, born in 1510. This will seem extraordinary to you, but I swear on the Bible that it is the truth. This has been my secret and Meg's for many years. Then Meg died and it was just my secret. Now it will become yours. You will never be able to claim your heritage. You would not be believed. The king and queen would not accept an older daughter. For Princess Mary, it would be too complicated. Now, if you had been a boy, it might have been different. So, Mistress Cat, you spent your first few months safe in Joan's arms, drinking her milk and sleeping in a crib together with baby Will. Joan never knew where you had come from, just that Meg had found you. Meg took the royal handkerchief that you were wrapped in before she handed you over to Joan, and we agreed never to talk about it again. When you were weaned, I talked with Joan about finding you another home, but she loved you by then and she didn't want to give you up. I could see that you would have a happy childhood with her and so I let things be. You may not be living as a princess, but I can tell you that you are happier than any princess could ever be. But then the sweating sickness came and took Joan and you were left on your own. I knew I had to get you to Meg to take care of you She was the only person who knew your history. I thought she was still with the court, and so I sent you there. 
What I didn't know was that she'd got married. Joan thought that I was a bad influence on you both. She thought that I was a witch. I wouldn't say a witch. I would say a wise woman. I'm afraid I used to tease her sometimes because she would get so annoyed. I could sometimes see the future and it's true that people used to visit me to look into the pictures in the fire but I've never put a spell on anyone. I could see part of your future but what I knew was your past and the effect it might have on you. Now I am near death. I realise it was wrong to hide this from you, that you have the right to know. It will not make your life easier, but God willing, it will help you to understand where you came from. I had hoped to find you at Queen Catherine's court, but you were no longer in attendance there. Signed, Agnes Stabb, 5th of August, 1531. I put the document down on the table and started to weep. All those years of not knowing, of believing I was the result of a servant girl getting into trouble. All that time I thought the king had seduced and then deserted my mother. And it wasn't true. I was a child the king and queen had wanted, had prayed for, but had thought was dead. How my life would have been different if I'd taken my first breath in the birthing chamber instead of in the antechamber next to a pile of dirty linen. Princess Mary would have been my younger sister and I would have been the heir. I thought for a moment what that might mean and realised I was glad that that life had been denied to me. The court was a dangerous and a volatile place for the main players and I was happiest on the sidelines. Will stood over me as I mopped my face with my handkerchief. But what happened to the other baby, I asked, the one that was still in the Queen's womb? Why is there no royal child of around my age? There was no other baby, Cat. The doctor was wrong, Will answered. And some months later, the Queen had to admit it, much to her sorrow. I cried out at the thought of all Queen Catherine had suffered and the pain it had caused her. I wanted to hold her in my arms and comfort her, tell her that she had had another daughter who had lived. Here, Cat, drink some wine. He gestured to the goblet and I picked it up and sipped. It felt warm and comforting. I looked over at Will and saw that he had got down on one knee. He took my hand in his and kissed it his face looking very serious. I must say this to you. You may have changed your mind about getting married, but I will be yours forever. Princess Catherine Tudor, I, William Cook, do become your liege man of life and limb and of earthly worship. I swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to you for all of my life. So help me God.